1: Welcome to the New Books and Political Science podcast. My name is Heath Brown, and today I will be talking to the author of A Social Revolution. Welcome to the New Books and Political Science podcast. My name is Heath Brown, and today I will be talking to the author of A Social Revolution, Politics and the Welfare State in Iran. The book is published by the University of California Press, and the author is Kevin Harris. Kevin is with me today. Kevin, how are you doing? Hi, Heath. I've read the book. Uh, it's a really interesting book. Uh, uh, a lot of this is is new to me, and so I've been very much looking forward to uh, having the chance to to talk about it with you. Before we get to all the interesting stuff in the book, why don't you just share a little bit about yourself and your background and where you are now?
0: Sure. I'm an assistant professor of sociology at University of California, Los Angeles. Uh, This is my first book. I teach uh, development studies here at UCLA, as well as uh, methods in historical and comparative sociology. And I wrote this book uh, to kind of both, you know, give a historical account of the rise uh, and change in Iran's social policy organizations, and also to compare uh, occasionally, these organizations and Iran, uh, with similar states um, and dissimilar states uh, in the Middle East and in other parts of the developing world.
1: Yeah, the, the book is um, is is really interesting. As, as you just note, the the book is about Iran and Iranian political development is one of the ways that you could describe it. Uh, maybe um, a political scientist, I think, uh, would might use that phrase. Now, during the writing of the book, you travel to Iran. Uh, I wonder if we can start off by you talking a little bit about how much time you spent in the country and and what you observed while you were there that informed the approach.
0: The book is really driven first by
1: observational questions that I had. So I've been going
0: to Iran since 2006. Uh, People may recall that this was the year after the election of a, uh, a new president in Iran, Mahmoud Ahmadinejad. On the one hand, he was disliked uh, by a lot of the country's kind of upper uh, upper middle classes and some of the educated classes in Iran. On the other hand, uh, you know, he he won two thousand five uh, with a big kind of groundswell support, and he was implementing a lot of changes. So I, I traveled first then, and I heard all these things about Iran: how it was a basket case, how you know the politics were uh, driven by uh, this newly rising middle class, and I did I didn't know how to. How to really understand it, and of course, I kind of went there with almost no preconceptions, and I was a young graduate student, and I did something that maybe you shouldn't do, but I didn't read a lot of the Iran literature. I kind of went in there just like, "What am I going to see?" And I actually to continue to go uh, every summer. Uh, I'm, I'm um, Iranian, uh, half Iranian, Iranian by birth, Iranian American, so I I can I could get a visa at the time as a student, and. After a couple summers there, learning the language, traveling around the country, talking to people from lots of different parts of the of you know of everyday life, elites, working class people, people who fought in the Iran-Iraq War in the nineteen eighties, I started to realize that the kind of stories I was reading about Iran by journalists, and then eventually, as I did read the scholarship, some of the ways that Iranian political development and social development were being portrayed in the scholarship, didn't really uh, explain um, the lots of different observations I was uh, I was seeing. And the main kind of inductive puzzle that I pulled out of that was, on the one hand, there are there were accounts of Iranian uh, political development that claimed that, you know, the state gets oil revenues. And because of the fact that most of the revenues for the state come from oil, it means that the state doesn't have to engage in bargaining processes through a variety of institutions that other states are forced to do so. This is the so-called taxation nexus, where if you tax individuals, uh, then elites end up having been forced to bargain with them down the road. And many scholars claim that the Middle East have been exempt from such processes of social bargaining because... Of the heavy reliance on oil revenues and so i said well let's go take a look at the key sites where the claims that bargaining doesn't exist might be occurring and these were the social policy institutions of health education and social welfare and i started to trace the history of these organizations backwards look at how they were formed look at the politics of them and then see the consequences and it's through those different organizations that i retell the story of post revolutionary iran
1: now, let's go to the pre-revolutionary time period to start. And um, there was what you call a corporatist welfare state administered by uh, a specific set of civic organizations. Uh, what does welfare uh, and what do welfare programs look like exactly before 1970, uh, 79? and And who did they serve primarily?
0: I use the term corporatist in the book to try to put the social policy organizations of pre-revolutionary Iran um, in comparison with much better understood and better studied organizations in places like Latin America. So Mexico, Argentina, Brazil, uh, Chile, uh, in the 19 from the 1930s to the 1970s, you know, developed social policy organizations such as pensions, uh, unemployment insurance, um, the main pillars of what we think of as as, as the welfare system Um, And they were targeted and narrow and didn't reach far down into society into into Latin America, even in the populist periods. Um, And they were usually organized around uh, occupational categories, usually professional, uh, working class occupational categories. So this was the way in which uh, developing states, similar to European states in the late 19th century also, began to reach down into society uh, and attempt to organize interests. So that uh, there's a large literature on corporatism, which many of you, many of the listeners might be familiar with. Um, when it was used in the Middle East, it was often used just as a kind of top-down metaphor to imply social control by the state, and the story was never followed forward in time. So, in the Iranian case, if you take a look at the organizations uh, of you know occupational pensions um, that developed. Under the Pahlavi monarchy from the 1930s to the 1970s, it looks very much like a Latin American story. It first starts in the key sectors that the state is building up to attempt to catch up with the West. So uh, obviously, the civil service, uh, the bureaucracy of the state is growing. and then key sectors uh, in the economy, which uh, you know required um, a much more stable working class, so oil. Uh, some parts of transport, gas, uh, eventually. And then um, as the state developed a larger public sector or encouraged a larger public sector in the 1960s and 70s, then uh, some formal uh, union organizations in general. But that, you know, covered, of course, a very small percentage of the population. And that doesn't make Iran unique. It actually, it actually makes Iran very similar to lots of developing countries that had big planning initiatives, of course, like Latin America and Mexico in the 1950s and 60s, Brazil, but uh, ended up uh, after 30, 40 years of of institution building, you know, basically covering the so-called formal sector uh, of the the labor market, of the economy, which always was a minority. And the large so-called informal sector was left out by design because they didn't have wage jobs. They're either in the rural sector or in the informal economy in the urban area. So, by the end of forty years of social policy building in the Pahlavi monarchy, uh, it actually looked very similar to the Latin American uh, cases.
1: Now, things change in so many ways uh, by the end of the nineteen seventies for Iran. You use this term "martyr's welfare state" throughout the book. Um, uh, what is it? What does this phrase refer to? And, and when does it arise in Iran? Is it, is it tied immediately to the revolution?
0: I should give credit to this term where credit is due. So I first read this term, martyr's welfare state, in a kind of one-off sentence in a lesser-known book from the historian Ervan Abrahamian, who's a historian of the Iranian left, usually. And he wrote a book in the late 80s about one of the many left-wing organizations that participated in the Iranian revolution, the Iranian Mujahideen. Uh, And, as usual, Abrahman is a socialist story, and he's kind of like the E.P. Thompson of Iran. So he both writes about the left, but he also makes analytical claims more broadly about changes in Iranian society. And he said that one of the things that the post-revolutionary state did after 1979 in Iran was that it it, uh, attempted to reach down further into society than the previous government, Um, well, perhaps not attempted, but actually accomplished. Accomplished. And he used the term martyrs welfare state because he was writing this at the end of the 1980s. And in the 1980s, Iran fought an eight-year war with Iraq, a war that was never formally declared by either side, as many third-world wars tend to be. Uh, uh, Casualty rates were high, not not horrific, but they were certainly high, but it was a long war, and it had the perceptions of a total war. And... The war, like many wars, uh, of course, have disastrous consequences for those involved, but they also have unintended consequences, just like wars in World War I or World War II. Uh, it's no coincidence that major social policy expansion in Europe, in the United States, and actually in, in uh, a lot of the, in the uh, uh, rest of the world at the time, uh, um, occurred immediately after large-scale wars. So war mobilization uh, often leads to social policy expansion. This is the so, this is the well known warfare welfare nexus. So, in Iran, we see this process at work, and but you know the way it works in every case can be you know can be is quite it can be different. In the Iranian case, you know as opposed to the categories that had been created by the Pahlavi uh, monarchy. Uh, who got into particular social policy programs and who was excluded, where they were largely done under corporatist lines of occupational categories. After the revolution, uh, the categories changed about who could belong, apply to, and were eligible for uh, new, social, new and existing social policies, such as um, primary health care to rural villagers, such as... Um, uh, veteran access to higher education and veteran family access to higher education, and I call this in general, you borrow from Abrahamian, the martyr's welfare state because the term martyr, uh, which is not specific to Muslim majority societies, you have to remember that the word martyr was used in the Spanish Civil War and it's used in um, the Cuban Revolution. Okay, so the ter- but the term martyr means that it's somebody who's sacrificing for the for the cause of the state, for the cause of the revolution, and so. Uh this category was kind of created from above and from below in the revolution itself. And during the war became a major site of claims making. So uh, in fact, the whole concept of martyrdom sort of all of a sudden had a set of laws that went around it, who could claim to be a martyr, or at least a, uh, someone who had sacrificed for the war. And then a variety of social policy institutions were created to, uh, prov- um, you know, give benefits to families out of that. But also in general, anybody who claimed participation In revolutionary or wartime mobilization, also began to make claims on the state based on those experiences. So, one of the main uh, transformations in the social policy arena in Iran after the revolution was the creation of a whole new set of parallel uh, social welfare organizations that were explicitly revolutionary, meaning they were explicitly tied to the the victory of the revolution, the victory of the war, etc. And so, I lay those out in the book. Uh, and I, I, I classified this sort of set of social policy institutions as a martyrs' welfare state, which did not displace the previous path organizations of pensions and you know, social security. In fact, they were created and ran parallel alongside of them, and to a certain extent, they still both uh, exist in parallel today.
1: And and this this you look at the area of, of healthcare in, in particular, and 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 talk about this the village health house system as one of the ways in which this welfare state is is administered in the area of health. I wonder if you could just talk briefly about the village health house system and how it worked to uh, to uh, distribute health care and provide health care information um, in, in a pretty innovative way.
0: For scholars of health policy, let's say in China, uh, uh, under Mao or, um, you know, the Cuban revolution, uh, or maybe Bangladesh or some other cases, the story in Iran is not too strange, but the story in Iran had never been told, I think properly. So I decided to devote a lot of time to understanding the healthcare system in Iran. Why? Uh, for a couple of reasons. One, um, for those people who aren't kind of, uh, Iran crazy, which a lot of people in the United States sometimes are. So Iran for them is a whole separate subject compared to every other part of the world. But for other people who have traveled around the world, the story in Iran actually is quite well known that Iran did a quite good job. The Iranian government did quite a good job after 1979 of extending uh, primary healthcare uh, institutions, and health these so-called health houses or health clinics, to um, and a very rapid uh, rapid delivery to the vast majority of the rural population. At the time of the revolution, the rural urban divide was about fifty uh, fifty, um, and uh, this had lots of different consequences. Uh, The rapid decline in communicable diseases, uh, uh, which had been very hard to beat uh, and to get rid of in the pre-revolutionary period. And then eventually over time, uh, the decline in fertility rates and the shrinking of family sizes in Iran. Iran went from a birth rate of around six to seven at the time of the revolution, which wasn't because of the revolution, had been existing beforehand. And then uh, by 2000, uh, Iran's birth rate was down to so called parity levels, which is about 2.1, 2.2 children per family. So it's one of the fastest demographic transitions in world history, going back uh, to all of it. Uh, and so the, the, the delivery of healthcare, uh, the establishment of a level of trust between uh, peasant and village life and state institutions in these arenas, and of course, the concomitant expansions in primary education for women. Uh, for girls, all these played a role. It's a complex process, but played a role in um, in the access, to, also access to birth control and family planning. Played a role in the shift in demographics. And you know, I'm not a demographic determinist. Sociologists generally aren't allowed to do this, but 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 it, it does make a difference uh, if you're having two kids or having seven in the ways that you know, in the kind of Gary Becker sense, you. You think about, you know, what, what do you what the point of these kids are <laughs> and how much you are going to invest in them. And also, uh, especially for girls, you know, is it worth, them to, worth to send girls to uh, school? And we know that in Iran, uh, at least for the last 20 years, there's been parity rates uh, between boys and girls going to high school and going to
1: college. Now, you start and then finish the book with the Green Movement and the protests and electoral politics of the more recent time period. So um, how does this development of the welfare state uh, with these parallel uh, institutions established that have different um, but, but overlapping histories um, how does this help us to understand the, the politics uh, and the welfare state of Iran today? Um, places this in, in today's world and, and, and relate this for us.
0: Yeah, the title of the book has the word politics in it. So there is uh, some brief accounts uh, of politics in Iran. And then I and then I try to link the story of elite political competition to the larger institutional story of how social policies are being expanded and the organizations around them, and then how individuals are being linked up with them from below. So there's lots of books already on elites in Iran. Yeah, Iran is this country largely studied uh, by elites, for elites, about elites. <laughs> and um, whether the elites are good or bad is usually the, you know, someone's, someone's interest. But elite centered narratives of Iran dominate the historiography and dominate the political science literature. So, I mean, this is a, tr- a book that really tries to get a bottom up uh, account of social change in Iran, while still taking into account, you know, the the way that the political structure matters. In that sense, I mean, it's a book about political development. I agree with you. So in that sense, you know, um, Iran is a contentious society. There's been uh, many instances of uh, popular upsurges. The 79 revolution is the most famous one, but the largest uh, set of public protests since 1979, occurred in 2009, uh, in the months after and about weeks after the uh summer's presidential election where Mahmoud Ahmadinejad was up for re-election um when he was uh when his vic- victory was declared rather rapidly after the election a lot of people believed that there was fraud but the perception of fraud was was wide and i was living in iran at the time i was there for field work and i you know saw this occur in front of me and it it actually helped me rethink Uh, the account of what a book about Iran should be, because the book about welfare systems shouldn't be a book about stasis. It shouldn't be a book about how states create social policy institutions and welfare systems, and that leads to lack of change. And if you remember in the 1960s, in the welfare state literature in the United States, a lot of the discussion of social policy was about how social policies tend to control people. The, uh, there was a debate by liberals and Marxists over our welfare systems controlling individuals. Of course, that debate went out the window once the welfare state in the United States declined, and nobody got more rambunctious. Nevertheless, the, the level of debate of the 1960s in the welfare literature is exactly the level of debate today, and how scholars and public intellectuals discuss social policies in the Middle East and actually lots of the developing world. Think about China. So I wanted to show that. Just because individuals are linked to the state through social policies institutions, this can't automatically be called patrimonialism, patient-client relations, or more importantly, actually, attempts uh, successful attempts by the state to control individuals and keep them from protesting. So, you know, the main puzzle is like, look, there's all these people in 2009 who was covered widely in the Western media. These people look educated. They tend to be they're mobilized. They share information quite widely. Uh, and they clearly have some kind of social power that they can get out in the streets and push back against the state. Were these people linked to the state at all, or were they totally autonomous and somehow grew out of Zeus's head? The minute I talked to any of these people, I was like, "So, you know, where did you get this education? How did you come to, you know, be in this kind of social position?" All many of them told stories about how they rose up through the same social policy institutions that I've been talking about in this interview. So the revolution the south and the war created a new set of social policy institutions that linked up with older ones. This expanded access to all kinds of upward mobility uh, pathways for, you know, a, a changing Iranian society. And surprise, surprise, you know, 10 years later, you get feminist movements, student movements, labor movements, and professional, you know, middle class movements who are, you know, they're not always acting in tandem, but they're making claims against the state. So the account of Iran and probably Middle East and, and developing countries social policy more generally, where states create social policy institutions to control individuals, they may do that. They may I'm not inside of the head of, of, of them, but the outcome doesn't look like the intention. And so in fact that's the main I and mean, there's a main point of the book for people who aren't just interested in Iran, but do hear such claims being made around the world uh, by politicians and intellectuals, it's that that just because a social policy institution is created doesn't mean that the outcome is going to be one of uh, acquiescence, control, and, and uh, political quiescence.
1: Uh, Kevin's book is A Social Revolution, Politics and the Welfare State in Iran, published by University of California Press this year. Kevin, thank you very much for your time today. Thank you so much.